following episode contains graphic and disturbing situations that may be triggering or too intense for some listeners. just didn't feel right. I would constantly feel nauseous, tired, and my body always felt achy. Some days, I would feel a prickling sensation on the back of my neck. After many checkups from my doctor, we came to the conclusion that nothing serious was wrong. So why was I feeling like this? Why was I feeling like this for so long? I recall a time at the gym I was in the free weights area. In most gyms, there are very large rectangular mirrors in that section. Between sets, I noticed an older gentleman staring at me throughout my entire workout. Where I went, he made sure to have me in his view. I almost wanted to approach him. I almost wanted to ask if he needed help or something. After the sauna, I run into the man. He stops me. We talk about our progress. Normal, right? Before we part ways, I'll always hold with me him telling me, Lord Almighty, he is great. He is everything wonderful. Please be more open to embracing the Lord. Didn't really think anything of it while he was in front of me. But as I got ready to head out of the gym, I started to think. On my way home that night, my car was struck by another vehicle. My vehicle was totaled and I ended up in the hospital with two broken ribs, a broken arm, and on impact, my head bobbed forward and I hit the wheel slamming my left eye into it. Seriously? The recovery process was rough. Taking time off from work, feeling suffocated by family, I was still having those feelings of sickness like I felt before as well. Then, to make matters worse, My girlfriend and I broke up. I was in a very dark and very low place. That's when things felt like they were starting to get worse. I started noticing things here and there around my place. Things like every time I would pass a mirror or any reflective surface, I would catch a glimpse of weird figures. The scariest one was when it seemed like a horned shadow was lurking in the background. It was always just out of sight, like something was with me. I was on a ton of medication, so I dismissed it as hallucinations. I would have the most intense and horrific nightmares. Now I want to share that I have never had any of these feelings or thoughts in real life. I don't even understand what could have triggered this. It was truly fucked. In the nightmare, I was having dinner with family. Everything was normal, going fine, until one of my cousins started to laugh hysterically. Soon enough, their laughter trickled down the table as if they were a set of dominoes. Each family member began to laugh hysterically one by one. There was about 12 of my family members there. I'm asking them, 
What is so funny? At the same time, my dad comes behind me and is holding me in the chair. I'm panicking and can't move. I see my mom walking over with what looks like a sword or a large blade. The moment she starts slashing me open would usually be the moment you wake up, right? But I didn't wake up. I think the most traumatic part was seeing this happen to myself, ripped open from end to end, blood splattering everywhere. Seeing my mutilated dead body while hearing my family's laughter was so traumatizing to me. I didn't jolt up like in the movies. I wasn't suddenly woken up by anyone. I just woke up the next morning. I was shaking. I was crying uncontrollably. I'm not entirely sure if I was going mental. I started to notice more cuts and scratches on my body, but couldn't be sure and differentiate those from the accident. The scratching became more persistent with deep scratches on my arms and legs. They weren't scabbed, they were fresh, like something had been clawing at me while I slept. At this point, I was isolated from everyone. I didn't really bring anything up to my family. I didn't even want to be around them. The more I tried to ignore the horned shadows and reflections, as well as the strange, creepy shit happening at my place, the worse they became. I wasn't able to sleep, not really eat, couldn't think about anything else. It was like I was trapped in my own personal hell. I lost so much weight. I made myself sick with how thin I was. I wanted this to stop. I wanted life to be how it was. It kept happening. Every night, I would wake up to new scratches on my body. And then I started hearing things, sniffing sounds outside my window, like something was trying to catch my scent. When I would get up to see what it was, there was nothing. The turning point for me wasn't until I saw the reflection in the mirror that I knew for sure that something was wrong. I was brushing my teeth, staring into the mirror when I had seen it. My reflection looked at me. But the face was twisted. It was twisted into a weird grin. And then I saw the shadows behind me. It looked like multiple hands. Instead of five fingers, these hands had two giant fingers. Then I heard a loud scream or a scream mixed with a growl. I jumped, then I dropped to the floor. I remember in this moment crying hysterically, having a panic attack. I couldn't breathe but I just kept sobbing and yelling. I just wanted this to stop. Was I going crazy? Was I dreaming? This isn't real. This can't be happening. Why me? I moved in with my parents not long after. I wasn't healing from my car accident properly. I wish I could say my story has a happy ending. I wish I could say I moved out and everything went back to normal, but it's not. I'm back at the gym and I'm at a healthier weight again. The sickness I felt doesn't really happen. I'm trying to point out the positives here. Also, I apologize for this lengthy description. I don't really tell anyone this story. My parents think I just had bad hallucinations from my medications. I know it sounds like that, but I know what I experienced and seen with my own eyes. I've done church, I have a therapist, who doesn't? I still experience things, but I try to zone them out. The weird and sometimes horned looking shadows, they're everywhere, darting out of the corner of my eye, or seem to be looming over me in the middle of the night. At least, I'm never alone.
Submit your questions and stories to ScreamQueerCast at gmail.com or by submitting them to Instagram at ScreamQueerPodcast. And catch new episodes every Tuesday morning wherever podcasts are streamed. Remember to rate and subscribe. Scream Queer Podcast with Ralph Anthony. The following content contains topics describing graphic violence, strong sexual content, explicit language, and elements that may not be suitable for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. What is going on, beautiful people of the world? Thank you so much for listening in to this episode. I hope you are all doing wonderful, thriving, and as always, hanging in there. I am back, screamers. I am back, baby. <laughs> I took a few weeks off from recording. I needed to, okay? I needed some mental health time. We all know what that's like, but honestly, if you are going through it right now, always remember that those much-needed breaks from whatever or whoever is draining you are required. It is so important to make sure you are able to disconnect, whether that be a day, a week, whatever. Our minds are so very fragile and we need to protect ourselves mentally just as much as we do physically. We always ever focus on physical, 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 but need to make time for our minds. But anywho, I plan on remaining active without any gaps between weeks because I am just feeling so very inspired more than usual lately. But if there are any changes and I need to step away for a moment, I will be the first to communicate with you all. But for right now, I am back. Sheesh. What an exciting time for me it has been. I would just like to share a really cool experience I just had. I just got back from LA where I attended a little workshop at Spotify Labs. It was a class with myself and other podcasters and creators. Now, the class pretty much taught the basics of podcasting, so this probably would have been more beneficial for me back in November of 2022 when I was first starting out as a little bitty podcast baby. But nonetheless, I am so happy and so grateful for the opportunity. I applied around, I want to say end of March, early February. And it was one of those times where fortunately, it just worked out for me. At first, I hesitated because if you signed up, you weren't necessarily guaranteed a spot to attend. Gosh, okay, can I also mention those negative thoughts Some of us experience where you just tell yourself these negative things like, what's the point? I'm not going to get it. Or why bother? I never even win anything. That is just the most toxic mindset to have. And 
I even make myself so angry when I do that. But you know what? Overall, I I took a chance and boom. But cut to the day. So it's the day of the event and I arrive super early because why not? I sign in, take a really fucking awful photo for my name tag. Then I went to go have a seat in the little waiting room area. Now I'm getting more and more nervous at this point. And I was on like four hours of sleep as well. So I'm like, shit, I'm really here right now. And as more and more creators started to trickle in and like they were all talking and then some were talking to me, I was just getting more and more anxious. If you struggle with social anxiety, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But everyone was just so cool and just really sweet. It was a great way to really network and really connect with different creators on experiences we can obviously all relate on. So the event gets moving and we move on to an area where Spotify has food for us. They have refrigerators with drinks, water, soda, sparkling water, flavored water. It was just it was so cool. But I was trying to be cute and like take little nibbles like, oh, I'm I'm going to be cute and just have a little bite of this cookie over here. When in reality, we know I wanted to just tear all of that food up. But then we enter a little classroom. And like I said earlier, we were taught and shown basically all of the basics such as sound, surroundings, what type of mics and equipment to use and all that cool stuff. And once that ended, we go into a different building, and that's where we really got to take a cool tour of all the different little rooms and studios. One room, there was an orange couch, and that was where the rapper Nas had been discussing 50 years of hip-hop. I also heard names like Emma Chamberlain and Joe Rogan in there. It was just all really, really, really cool. Now, the day didn't end without all the creators getting a cool little gift, which was a ring light and a cute little mic. And I don't want to keep blabbering and on and on and on and on and on, but I thought I would share with you all that little experience. And for more info on that, if you're interested, check out my personal and podcast Instagrams at Ralph Anthony, that's with three Y's, and at Scream Queer Podcast. I posted some content from the visit. I wish I could have captured more, but I honestly was just too busy soaking everything in. It was just, I couldn't believe I was there, honestly. But overall, I'm glad I attended it. It was a great experience to really connect with people pursuing the same passion as myself. And you know, it's really fucking amazing how many different voices there are out there with different experiences, different platforms and and viewpoints to share. So it really inspired me to want to take the show to the next level, whether that's incorporating video or taking risks and possibly reaching out to higher profile creators to get them on here because I love this show and what it's turning into what it's becoming and I am going to really just put in the fucking work here so stay tuned screamers up next I have a double dose of true crime coming your way 
First up, a man responsible for taking the lives of 93 victims, as well as one very heartbreaking 911 call. Stay tuned after the break. Samuel Little, also known as Samuel McDowell, was born on June 7, 1940, in Reynolds, Georgia. He was one of 13 children born to an unmarried mother and was raised by his grandmother. Little was known to be transient, moving from place to place, often living on the streets and committing crimes to support himself. Little's criminal history dates back to the 1950s, and he was arrested numerous times throughout his life for various offenses, including theft, assault, and rape. However, at that time, Little would not be held accountable for his more horrific crime, murder. Little's method of killing was to strangle his victims. Often with his bare hands, he would typically target vulnerable women, such as prostitutes, drug addicts, and those living on the margins of society, who he believed would not be missed if they disappeared. Little would then move on to a new location and repeat the process, making it difficult for law enforcement to connect the crimes. Despite his killing spree, Little managed to avoid detection for decades. He was finally caught in 2012 when DNA evidence linked him to the murder of three women in Los Angeles between the years 1987 and 1989. Little was arrested in Kentucky and extradited to California to stand trial. In 2014, he was convicted of the three murders and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. During his time in prison, Little began confessing to additional murders, providing investigators with details of crimes he had committed across the United States. He claimed to have killed at least 93 women, many of whom had not been identified. Little's confessions were confirmed by DNA evidence, witness statements, and other evidence, and he was eventually charged with additional murders in multiple states. Little died in prison on December 30th, 2020, at the age of 80. His death came just months after he had confessed to the murder of a woman in 1996, thus making him one of the deadliest serial killers in American history. The case of Samuel Little is significant for several reasons. First, it highlights the difficulty of tracking serial killers. Little's ability to move from state to state, committing murders without detection, is a testament to the challenges faced by law enforcement in these cases. Second, the case underscores the importance of DNA evidence in solving crimes. Little was finally caught because DNA evidence linked him to the murders of three women in Los Angeles. This breakthrough allowed investigators to connect him to other crimes and build a case against him. Third, the case raises questions about the criminal justice system's treatment of marginalized individuals, such as drug addicts and sex workers. Little's victims were often women who lived on the fringes of society and were not viewed as valuable by law enforcement or society at large. This may have contributed to Little's ability to operate 
operate for so long without detection. And finally, the case of Samuel Little serves as a reminder of the human toll of serial killing. Little's victims were real people with real families and loved ones, and their lives were cut short by a man who had no regard for their humanity. It is often important to remember their stories and honor their memories, even as we seek to understand the motivations and actions of their killer.
Jan Caron met her future husband, Tim Caron, for the first time at Clackamas River in 1978. Tim was an 18-year-old, burly, brown-haired boy, a year older than her, who went to a different high school and was reputed to be a ladies' man. They formally met the following year when they both worked at a chainsaw manufacturing company in Milwaukee, and by that March, they began dating. Jan and Tim would eventually end up getting married, and Jan was pregnant with their first child five months later. Their mutual love of humor and the outdoors drew them together. They had two children and enjoyed road trips and hiking around Oregon. They even started a pipe leak detection business together, with Jan scheduling appointments and answering the phones. However, Tim had a stubborn and controlling streak and a quick temper that sometimes resulted in violent outbursts. Jan forgave him for the first time he ever hit her, thinking that it was normal for couples to take time to adjust to one another. But over time, the arguments between them escalated, and in 2006, Tim would pull a gun on Jan during a heated argument, threatening to kill her. Despite Jan's love for Tim and his assistance in caring for her after her heart failure diagnosis, she never reported his abusive behavior to police. However, by 2012, she noticed changes in Tim's behavior toward her, becoming more critical and ridiculing her. He also experienced bouts of depression and made suicide threats, even suggesting they kill each other. Jan thought about it briefly because of her love for Tim. Later. Tim physically assaulted Jan, pinning her to the floor during an argument, twisting her arm and knocking her to the ground. Another instance resulted in Tim throwing a water bottle at Jan's head. Jan finally called 911 and got a year-long restraining order against Tim, fearing for her life. Tim left their home and moved in with their son, causing Jan to feel both saddened by the prospect of never speaking to him again and scared he may harm her again. Despite the restraining order against him, Tim attempted to contact his wife through their son and by phone, but Jan refused to speak with him. Jan took precautions, such as placing furniture against the doors. On January 16th, 2015, Jan made the difficult decision to ask for a divorce. She began preparing to move out. While taking a break from cleaning, she received a call from Tim, which she quickly ended by telling him of her decision to divorce and not to contact her again. However, she became concerned that the conversation had upset Tim enough to turn violent. She drove to her church for comfort but later spotted Tim following her in his truck. Jan called 911 for help as Tim began to fire shots at her. In an attempt to lose him, she turned sharply, causing Tim to crash into a wooden fence and into the side of the house. Jan was hit by four bullets but managed to escape her SUV and was helped by a woman in a nearby garage until authorities arrived. Tim, who had also shot himself, survived and was taken to the hospital. Jan spent 12 days in the hospital for her injuries. Before the shooting, Jan had informed her son Travis that she had decided to divorce Tim 
to which Tim replied that their marriage was not ending. Travis also recalled receiving a call from his father who expressed his desperation to keep Jan in his life. Jan believes that Tim's depression led him to attempt to kill her. Despite this, she still wears two wedding rings, one from their wedding day and the other a symbol of their efforts to fix their marriage. Jan suffers from nerve damage in her left arm, but she tries to take things one day at a time and as good memories of Tim. When doctors informed Travis that Tim had no brain activity, Jan, as his legal next of kin, had to make the difficult decision to end his life. Some family members did not agree that Jan should be the one to make this decision, but she insisted on doing it alone because she was still Tim's wife. Despite the anger and hurt caused by the attack, Jan still loved Tim and knew that he would not have wanted to suffer. She spoke to him from her hospital bed saying goodbye and telling him that he would always be the love of her life. Help is available. Speak with someone today. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-799-7233 or start a text by texting 88788. You can also find out more information at the National Domestic Violence Hotline website at www.thehotline.org. If you or anyone you know is having suicidal thoughts, please contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by dialing 988. You can also text 988 to start a chat. Help is available, and help is available 24-7. Before I wrap up today's episode, I want to end it by simply thanking you all for listening on a weekly basis and just being so supportive and engaging with me, whether that's on social media or you engage through the email. And I am starting to get quite a bit of messages. So I just want to point out that I am doing my absolute hardest to get to all of them and respond to them. If I don't get back to you in a timely manner, I am not ignoring you. I promise I will get to every single message. But in the meantime, if you can just leave me a rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate that. As well as leave me a rating on Spotify. It really does mean a lot to me. And I I just I, I love doing this so much. Like it is so much fun. I really enjoy the entertainment aspect of it. I enjoy sharing these people's stories. I just, I really fucking love that I started to pursue this because I'm just, it's just amazing to me. Like I set out to to do this because I wanted to connect with people who I had never connected with prior. And that's exactly what I'm doing. So I just, I want to keep it going and I want to keep connecting with with new people, see new faces, engage with different accounts. So don't be shy. Send those questions. Send those horror stories to screamqueercast at gmail.com or you can simply send me a DM at screamqueerpodcast. Please, please, please note that all entries will remain anonymous. I do not share any of your information with anyone, even those close to me, because that keeps the integrity of this show up. So on that note, 
I love you all so much. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I will talk to you all on the next episode.